0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21. And while you're turning there, I have a a question for you. And uh, you may have noticed that it's right there in the sermon title. What do you expect from Jesus? Really? (laughs) What do you really expect from the real Jesus? today, this week, in coming weeks, in coming months, and in coming years, what is your expectation for Jesus in your life and in your heart? What we're going to see, and we're going to read the the story, the account in just a minute, we're going to see Jesus literally riding into a perfect storm of competing expectations. Literally riding into, we'll see it in the text, riding into a perfect, just an absolute perfect storm of all kinds of expectations. Most of them are wrong about who He is, why He came, what He will do, what he will continue to do. What do you expect? What do I expect? What do we expect from Jesus? Let's pray before I read. Lord God, we know that when we read your word, it is just that, your word. We know that even from looking at how Jesus understood the Word. If we take the Word seriously like Jesus took the Word seriously, it will change our lives by the power of the Word together with the Spirit. You have promised that when we read your Word, when we wrestle with your Word, when we teach and preach your Word, when we memorize and meditate and think about and and sing your word. You have promised that it will change our hearts and change our lives as the Spirit comes and uses that word. So we pray, Lord, that as we read and as we walk through this passage this morning, that you would come by the power of your Spirit working through your Word, and we would have great expectations. We would have great expectations, realizing that you exceed. When we really know you and understand you, Lord Jesus, you exceed every expectation. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 17. And now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna! To the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared Praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Palm Sunday points directly to the Garden of Gethsemane. Palm Sunday points directly to the cross. Palm Sunday points directly to the empty tomb. Palm Sunday points directly to the resurrection. This is the first day, the first step to following Jesus through Holy Week. It's a wonderful day. We look forward to it every year. And there's no better time as we begin Holy Week than to ask ourselves our expectations of Jesus. What we would expect of him. There, there is no better time to take our spiritual temperature. Where are we? What's going on in our lives? What's going on in our hearts with or without Jesus? Now, this time of year, we probably have uh, visitors, guests. Welcome. Wonderful to have you here if you're a visitor this morning. And we have longtime members and everything uh, in between. And we would have even ourselves, wouldn't we, this morning? All kinds of expectations of Jesus. Some of you may be thinking this. What I expect of Jesus is for him to prove himself. For him to reveal himself. I'm not so sure. I don't think I know Jesus. I don't think I have a relationship with Jesus. That's fine. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Some of you may be apathetic about Jesus. You know, we have our ups and downs, don't we? Some of you may be saying you're a Christian, that you are someone who's... Uh, Born again, but you may actually live as though Jesus isn't there. You may say that you look. I I I don't have time to have have my head in the clouds. I live in the real world. Uh, I'm not so sure about this stuff, or I'm not so sure I care. But some of you, I know that some of you are in this next category. You're discouraged. You're discouraged. You need assurance and comfort and encouragement. You, you expect that. You would like to expect that from Jesus. You're discouraged. Some of you, and I know some of you that are in this category too, you need healing. And you expect healing, whatever kind of healing that might be. And you look to Jesus for that and you expect that. Some of you, and we go on and on. I'll stop with this one. Some of you don't know what to expect from Jesus. Whether you've been in a church for a long time or not. Whether you've been around Christians or not. One of the greatest living New Testament scholars sums up this passage this way. Listen to what he says. The story of Jesus' grand entry into Jerusalem is an object lesson in the mismatch between our expectations and God's answer. And it is. The story of Jesus' grand entry into Jerusalem is an object lesson in the mismatch between our expectations and what God actually does and has for us. The hosannas are justified, but not for the reasons that they supposed. The bad news here is that the crowds are going to be disappointed. The good news is that Jesus' arrival in the great city is indeed the moment that salvation is dawning. Is indeed the moment that salvation is dawning. And the first thing that flies off the page as we read this account or the accounts in the other gospels of the triumphal entry is that first and foremost, Jesus is a king. We should expect him to be a king. You've, you've heard that before, but we've got, a, we've got a little bit of a problem there. When's the last time you stood in the presence of a real king? I won't make you raise your hand. You, you either would have had to visit some visiting monarch from somewhere or visit some other country to actually be in the presence of a real Look, Americans don't do kings. We, we had a king many years ago. His name was George. He didn't go so well. We don't do kings. We don't think in terms of royalty. You know, there are other countries. If, you've, if you visit it, you look at your money, there's a crown on it. You look at a coin, there's a scepter on it. You look at a, a, a government building, there's all kinds of images of, of royalty and monarchy on government buildings or military uniforms. We don't have the Royal Mail or the Royal Air Force. We don't have any of that imagery around us anywhere. And yet we're told that Jesus is a king. He is our king. Now if you will admit it, I'll admit it, some of you will stay up really late at night or get up really early to watch a royal wedding. You know who you are. Uh, or, or a royal funeral. Or a coronation. Or you'll go and, and watch a movie called The Return of the King. Or Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> or Prince Caspian. Or the king's speech. We could go on and on. We find it intriguing, don't we? We find it interesting. And even when we don't say, I'm not interested in that royalty stuff, we end up taking something like an athlete or a famous movie star and and making that person royalty. Why? Why? Every human being that has ever lived or ever will live has been made and created to worship a king. That's what we are made for. We're made to worship a king, but we're made to have the right expectations about that king. We're made to understand who that king really is and what we should expect from him. And this passage goes a long way toward helping us understand, okay, so he's a king, what kind of king? What should we expect from this king? And you notice the, there's one group here, first, number one, there's a, there's a group, a large group that expects a national, political military warrior king. They have been looking forward to this king for a long, long time, praying about the coming of a king like this for a long, long time. Now the setting, here's the setting. The setting is the celebration, the annual celebration of Passover. And there are thousands of people coming into Jerusalem on this dusty road. It's packed with people coming into Jerusalem for this great celebration of Passover. They're coming into Jerusalem to celebrate Jewish Independence Day. Their rescue and freedom from slavery and bondage in Egypt and the blood over the door, covered with the blood of the Lamb and being set free from from bondage, from slavery. And they're coming into Jerusalem to remember this, to celebrate this. And there's a great celebration going on here. And the highlight of this celebration will be the sacrifice of the Passover lamb when God had passed over them. And they're looking forward to every year and they're praying every year, when will the king come? Because we've got a problem. We've got a big problem right in the middle of all this celebration. And that problem is Romans. Not the book of Romans, Roman people. Um, The Roman emperor who claims to be divine, claims to be, calls himself the son of God calls himself, confers upon himself glory and power and calls himself the Son of God and has has subjugated the Jewish people, the Israelites. And they're hoping and they're praying that Jesus will finally be the one that comes, the anointed one, the king, who will come in as a warrior king a national king, a a political king. They have great hopes for the restoration of their power, the restoration of their worship, the restoration of their temple. And they so hope that Jesus is finally the one. Look what they do. They do here and they've done this time after time, they do what whenever somebody of royalty comes into town, they take their cloaks off and they lay them in the road as a sign of loyalty. They wave, as we saw earlier, they they wave palm branches. It's like waving a, a national flag, if you will, in great celebration. They sing a psalm, Psalm 118. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're full of of national pride. If you've ever been in in another place that does this sort of thing, if you've ever been in Great Britain or seen it on TV, it would be something like, God save the King! Waving flags and singing, God save the King! And they have great hopes, great expectations. But they don't have the same attitude at the end of the week. By the end of the week, most of them have given up. By the end of the week, most of them have fled. Some of them are mocking. Some of them are shouting, crucify Him. Why? Because He didn't meet their expectations. And, and we need to not miss this, you know, at the beginning of the week, it's a great celebration. At the end of the week, there's a cost. At the end of the week, there's a cost. There's a cost for following Jesus at the end of the week. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration from a movie. And please don't watch this movie to get your theology straight about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's superstar. You know, some of you will remember that um, uh, great theological uh, movie uh, years ago. But don't, don't go to it for your theology. But there's one scene that gets it absolutely right. Gets it absolutely right. As Jesus is traveling along the road... on on the donkey along the road into Jerusalem, one of his disciples looks at him and says, finally, we're going to get the power. Finally, we're going to get the control. Finally, we're going to get the Romans. Finally, we're going to get the invaders. And Jesus turns and says this, neither you, nor the 50,000, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Judas, nor the Twelve, nor the priests, nor the scribes, nor Jerusalem itself understands what real power is or understands what real glory is. You don't understand. I am not coming as a warrior on a war horse. I am not coming as a warrior on a war horse horse. Um, One commentator puts it this way, people turn to God notoriously when there's something they want very badly. That's how we are. Church attendance goes up by leaps and bounds during a major crisis, a war, say, or an earthquake. Suddenly everyone wants to ask the big, hard questions. Suddenly everyone wants Jesus to ride into the city and become the sort of king they want him to be give us peace, pay my bills, heal me, help me. We've all been there. Most of us have been there. There's a cost. Often our expectations are wrong, like lest we point fingers, <laughs> often our, our expectations are wrong, and often we don't want a cost. We don't want a cost. If, you, if you're following Jesus... Occasionally, from time to time, even in the buckle of the Bible belt, there's going to be a cost. It's going to be a cost at school, at work, in the neighborhood, on the sports field. I'll just leave you with this question: Do you? And some of you have heard me say this before. You'll hear me me say it again. I got it from Jonathan Edwards many years ago. Do you find Jesus useful or beautiful? is Jesus for is your expectation of Jesus that he's going to be useful or beautiful so beautiful that you'll follow him anywhere so beautiful that you'll do whatever he calls you to do useful or beautiful. Well, there, there's another group. They don't see or look forward to or expect a national, political, or warrior king. They see him and they expect him to be an imposter king. Well, he's not the real thing, he's just posing. Um, he's just faking the chief priests and scribes and teachers of the law and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Romans. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Jesus is often, for people like that, a threat. He's a threat to power and control and independence. Um, Have you ever noticed when people come into contact with Jesus in the Bible, they're never mildly indifferent? They typically either hate him Fear Him or worship Him. He doesn't allow for mild indifference. And you see it in this passage. Why are they following Him? How can they follow Him? They need to be following us. We know the law. We know the Scriptures. We know the way to God. He's, he's not the real thing. Others are just hard-hearted and cynical. You remember Pilate? What Pilate says to Jesus, so you're a king. Interesting. So you're the king of the Jews. And Jesus says, It is as you say, and I have come here to bear witness to the truth. You remember what Pilate says? What is truth? He says it to Jesus, what is what is truth? You say you're a king. Really? What is truth? And in John 19, Pilate wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus, to mock Jesus, Jesus, King of the Jews. And so some of the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write King of the Jews, rather write this man said he was King of the Jews. Don't write King of the Jews, write Jesus said he was King of the Jews, he's an imposter. He's not really the king of the Jews. Remember the, the soldiers dress Jesus in a purple robe and a crown of thorns and say, Hail, king of the Jews. You're a fake. You're an imposter. And the people standing at the cross, he saved others, he can't save himself. Come down from there. You say you're a king who saves others, and you can't even save yourself, Jesus, up there on that cross. Come down. Prove it. Come down. Prove it. And again, lest we point fingers, many of us have been there. Jesus is a threat to your independence. Jesus is a threat to your own way. But he works by his grace and mercy and love in his timing and his way, but he calls you to loyalty. He calls you to worship. He calls you to obedience. Finally, who is Jesus really? What should we expect from Jesus from this passage? Jesus is a king who is at the same time a savior. He's a, he's a savior king. Now, let's talk about the donkey. Uh, sometimes we miss the point. <laughs> you know, thinking of a king who's a savior, Jesus, God on a donkey coming into town and a lot of times our initial response to that scene is to think that's ridiculous, right? We might even be tempted to to laugh Jesus on a donkey Jesus on a donkey you know donkeys they're funny shaped they have oblong heads they have big ears they make funny noises for us in the 21st century not so for them yes they still look funny but how they saw this donkey what Jesus is doing here He's not being ridiculous. <laughs> and he's not even, he's not even just being humble. It was not uncommon for kings to ride into Jerusalem on donkeys. Nobody's laughing. Nobody's laughing. But they ride into Jerusalem on donkeys to display to declare peace. Peace, peace time. Jesus is not charging in on a war horse. He's walking in very slowly and deliberately. You see all the trappings of royalty around him as he, as he comes in slowly and deliberately to declare and display himself as a very different kind of king, a king that brings peace, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. We got to sing that at Easter. We only get to sing it at Christmas. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's what he's declaring by riding on this donkey. But something else that, that can be easy to miss... And it's important because this is what Jesus is declaring, dis- displaying as he, as he comes in. You'll notice that he's riding on a, a colt, a foal. Mark and Luke tell us that this particular animal was never ridden before. Never ridden before. Now, I don't know how many of this is something that I know about. Um, many of you still don't believe me. But I, I was born and raised in Texas, and many years ago I used to work with horses. I hauled hay, worked with horses, trained horses. I know you don't believe it, but it's true. It's not good for pastors to stand up here on Sunday and lie. Uh, but it's, it's true. And the first time you get on an animal that's never been ridden before, you've done work, you've done groundwork first, you get on a four-legged animal, whether it be a donkey or a horse, the very first time, what happens? What happens is usually not good. Yeah, the very first time you get on an animal like that, when you're training an animal like that, you get in a small round ring because if he or she takes off, all they can do is run around in a little tight circle, even if they run off and buck. Just a little tight circle. You don't get on an animal that's never been ridden before and ride it into a crowd of thousands of people unless you're Jesus. It's, it's here. Jesus is, even in that, declaring his sovereignty over all creation. Even in something as small as that, he is declaring his sovereignty over all creation. And then he goes into town in Jerusalem, and where does he go? He goes to the temple, and he says, this is my house. This is my house. Somebody told me after the first service, I'm only used to hearing that as associated with sports, my house. Jesus is saying, he, he, he's saying, this is my house, and my house will not be some, some kind of symbol of national, political, war, Control. It will not be a market. It will be, here's what Jesus is saying it will be a place of worship, a place of prayer. It will be a place of worship, a place of prayer. And what does he also do while he's there? He heals. See what he's doing? He's coming in and he's bringing peace. He's bringing worship. He's bringing prayer. He's bringing healing. That's what we ought to be as a church. Peace, worship, prayer, healing. That's what Jesus is bringing here as a Savior who's a king, and he's doing it in a very deliberate way. Now, do you remember when the the account of the, the Apostle Paul in... 2 Corinthians 12, if if you've read that before. The Apostle Paul is giving his testimony. He's talking about how he came to Jesus Christ. He's talking about how Jesus Christ has worked in his life. And he's doing this in a way, go back and read it. He's doing it this way, but he's kind of humble and hesitant about it. And it's a very sensitive personal issue for the Apostle Paul. And he's opening up in this letter to the Corinthians and talking about what God has done in his life. And he gets to the point of, of talking. He's had, had great visions, but also great suffering. But he gets to the point to talking about this thorn this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was, but we do know it was distracting. It was painful. It was difficult. And Paul goes directly to the same Jesus that appeared to him on the Damascus road and brought about his conversion and calling. And he says, Jesus, will you take this away? I know what you have called me to, to spread the gospel around the world, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Will you take this away? It hurts. It's hard, and he doesn't just ask once. He comes back, and he comes back, and he comes back. Will you take this away? Do you remember the answer? It's the answer that we cling to as believers. My, Jesus, what Jesus, Jesus says to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Now. That could be a whole sermon series right there. My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. But I want you to notice not only that, but Paul's response. And I have wondered at this response. It just what not what does it mean? But I've just it's it's just a wonder to read this. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then i am for the sake of Christ i am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when i am weak in jesus christ and through his mercy then then i am strong now how is how is paul able to say that how is Paul able to respond like that? Because Paul knows, yes, he's got a thorn, but he serves and has responded to and loves a Savior that wore a whole crown full of thorns. who died in his place by grace and love and mercy for every sin, for every failure, for every fault, stood in Paul's place condemned and shouted out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then was (laughs) those wonderful words, those wonderful words, that we look forward to, uh, to hearing time and time again. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Uh, Dorothy Sayers is a was a, a, a British writer. She put it this way: Jesus Christ will be victor and victim in all his wars, and he will make triumph in defeat. victor and victim in all his wars and make triumph in defeat so that we can say nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling nothing we can't earn it we can't work for it we can't claim it nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling my grace is sufficient for you for power is made perfect through weakness at the cross and the empty tomb and the resurrection and the ascension Jesus is alive what are your expectations of him you know a very real sense sorry about this i've been asking the the, the wrong question the whole sermon it's not what our expectations are of him, but what his expectations are now of you. He calls you to follow him wherever he goes. Recognize him as Savior and Lord. Cling to his cross and that alone for your salvation. He is the way, the only way, uh, the life and the and the truth. Let me close with this. Um, I read this this week, and it was such a challenge and a conviction to me. I want to read it to you. It's actually from a sermon that, you know, we preacher types, we read sermons and we read commentaries and we do all kinds of things in in preparation for these uh, times with you. And this is from a sermon that I read this week. I'll close with this. As we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus today a question presses in upon us. Are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill our hopes and desires or even some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks in the road in front of him, but to follow him wherever he leads? Fortunately, he doesn't wait for our motives to be completely pure or for us to have sorted out our lives to the point where we can look at him face to face and eye to eye. He comes to us to seek and to save to rescue the lost. But once you look to Jesus for this, for help, for salvation, for rescue, he will do so more thoroughly than you ever imagined. He will do so more thoroughly than you ever imagined. Let's pray. Lord God, as we pause to remember and reflect upon Jesus riding in to Jerusalem, displaying and declaring himself as a king of peace. Who brings prayer and worship and healing and <laughs> salvation, rescue from sin and death. As we walk into this week with Him, as we walk into our lives with Him, we recognize we bring nothing to commend ourselves to say, save me because of this. I have accomplished this. No, we completely trust on on him and and him alone and his grace, his mercy, his life, his death, his resurrection for our salvation, for our contentment, as we saw Paul say, our contentment and our eternal life. And in response... With hearts full of love and hearts full of gratitude, we pray that we would say, We want to follow you, Jesus. Where do you want us to go? We want to follow you, Jesus. Lead us. What would you have me do? What would you have us do? And Lord, give us the grace and mercy and give us the courage. By your grace, give us the courage to remember your grace is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. We pray all of these things in the name of him who came such a great distance for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, amen.